Turn with me to, uh, in your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 68. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no mercy to take? Have you no answer? I'm sorry to make. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it? That struck you. This is the word of the Lord, our God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we have a record of this text because it gives us hope when. Friends betray us when the process in life stinks and when the system seems biased and broken and outrageously unjust. We thank you that you understand, Lord Jesus, in a way that it's hard to even articulate. You understand so deeply what it's like to be treated unfairly. So I pray today that that would come through so clear that our hearers in this room or over the internet would just feel your presence and your love 
and your protection. And I pray that today also we would see you as the one who offers atonement for our sins and the one who endured such awful treatment in order to purchase our forgiveness. What a beautiful thing you have done. So help us to understand this today. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Last week we were able to join Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as we observed him pouring out his heart to his disciples and then in prayer to his Father. We saw him experience great grief. We saw him struggle with doing the will of God. We heard him say, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And then we also saw him with unbelievable resolve decide to pursue the Father's will. We've seen Jesus in his darkest moment, and through it all we've seen him as a Savior who walks decidedly, although painfully, to the cross. If Matthew 26 were a movie or a syndicated television show, last week's text could have ended with the words, to be continued. Because the paragraph ends with a bit of a cliffhanger. Jesus comes back to his disciples, finds them asleep, and then says to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. The setting is the middle of the night. They're on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus and the disciples can likely hear a crowd that's coming up the Mount of Olives. And what happens next is the most infamous act of betrayal ever recorded in history. It's made famous, the phrase, betrayed with a kiss. It's why there's no child in the nursery named Judas. What happens is that Jesus experiences unfairness in a way that is deeply disturbing and striking. He's, he's betrayed. This is the Son of God. He's betrayed by one of his own disciples. And, and then, he's not only betrayed by his own disciple, but he's betrayed by the entire justice system, the religious justice system. And so what happens here is that Jesus experiences injustice both personally and formally. He experiences pain from a follower and from the entire system. Both are painful, but they're painful in different ways. My guess is that everyone in this room knows this kind of pain at one level. You may know it from a person who's betrayed you, a friend, a family member, someone who's done you wrong, insulted you. Maybe he or she walked away from a marriage or a business or a relationship. Most of us know what it is to endure bad process where things happen and you look back at it and you're like, I wouldn't do it that way, that wasn't fair. And then some of you know what it's like to suffer injustice at the hands of a system where the unfairness and the pain isn't just a person, it's the whole thing, it's the school, it's the employer, employment, it's the job, it's the culture, where there's this embedded bigotry, this embedded unfairness, and systemically the whole thing is just completely messed up, and it's so unbelievably frustrating. 
Today we're going to unpack this dark moment in Jesus' life. We're going to see what lessons we can learn first about Jesus, the nature of what the Bible calls good news, how this intersects with injustice, and then how all this relates to our lives. And we're going to see that Jesus walks this path of suffering and not only marches to the cross, but he marches to that cross and gives us great comfort and hope. So first, here's the personal injustice. Immediately after Jesus says, my betrayer is at hand, Judas appears. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, so the words are coming out of his mouth, Judas came, and then Matthew says, one of the twelve. We really didn't need that. We all know, and the readers know, that Judas is one of the twelve. But Matthew wants to make a point here, and the point is, is that one from his inner circle, that's who it is, And with a great crowd, with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So the ironies here are so many. First you have an intimate follower of Jesus who's leading a group of people who are the religious leaders. They've got arms and clubs. They've got soldiers with them, probably some temple guards, also probably some Roman soldiers. And these are the religious leaders of the day. They're being led by a disciple. They have weapons, and they're coming to arrest the Son of God. Nothing about this picture makes sense. Everything about this picture is deeply disturbing. But Matthew wants the reader to see that the path that Jesus chooses is the path of suffering. And this path will ultimately culminate on the cross. Judas, we learned in Matthew 26, 14 to 16, has sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, and... John tells us that he left the Passover meal and then went to find the religious rulers. And some commentators suggest that what Judas did is he took them and brought them to the upper room. And when they found that empty, they then went to the second most common place, or the most common place, rather, that the disciples would have gathered, that being the Garden of Gethsemane. Since it was dark, it's the middle of the night, And since some of the religious rulers, no doubt, had not met Jesus personally, Judas had arranged for a sign so they would know who Jesus was. And obviously that sign was a kiss. He told the religious rulers, verse 48, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. Now this kiss was a common greeting among friends in the Near East, much like it's practiced today. But it's intriguing to me that Judas uses this as the means of identifying who Jesus is, as if initially this kiss is somehow a secret symbol, like a baseball sign. Watch this, I'm going to do this, and when I do this, you'll know that he's the one. But it can't be deceptive, because it's pretty clear Judas with armed thugs, I mean, we see what's happening. No one's wondering, hey, Judas, you know, what's up? You bringing us food? I mean, they know what's going on here. Judas, with the rulers, with arms, is bad news. So it's not a a secret that Judas is going to deliver Jesus. So why does he, he kiss him? Judas could have said, he's the third one from the left. He could have gone up and said, that's him right there, that one. Could have done anything, but he chooses a kiss. Why, why a kiss? It seems that the reason that Judas does this is because it's a calculated insult. 
Some suggest that it would have been an insult just for a disciple to go up and greet a rabbi without first being greeted by the rabbi, let alone the fact that he's got all of this loaded betrayer motive that's happening. It's reminiscent of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 41.9 where it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is why on the news in the Near East, when folks get really mad, they lift up their shoes, lifted up his heel against me. It's why somebody, remember that news conference when the person threw the shoe at President Bush? Remember that? It's because the heel, that's what this comes from. This idea of you lift up your heel, you, 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 you are despising someone, and, and here is this close friend who is being so deceitful. And yet, in the midst of this, Jesus is completely controlled. He says, verse 50, friend, do what you came to do. No doubt his words were curt and direct. And from there, then the scene turns absolutely chaotic. The text tells us that Jesus was seized by the soldiers, and then one of the disciples, Peter, according to John, takes his sword out and tries to fend off the coming guards, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And and no doubt, at that moment, there must have been screaming, because someone cuts off your ear with a sword, you're going to scream. There's blood that's all over the place. And no doubt, the other soldiers, because of now this immediate aggression, are rushing in like a bench-clearing brawl. And in the chaos of the moment, Jesus intervenes and says this, Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In other words, you live by violence, you die by violence. Some suggested that Jesus, therefore, is a pacifist. This text can't prove that. Instead, what he's saying is this, and the reason why Matthew has this here, is there was this thought that during, when Matthew wrote, that, that Jesus' followers were part of a movement called the Zealots, and they were like Judaistic terrorists. They tried to usurp Rome by physical force. And what Matthew is doing here is clearly telling his readership that Jesus was no zealot. But Jesus' motive is even beyond just the issue of violence. He's going to willingly give himself. A sword is pointless because then he says, verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So Jesus has the power instantaneously to say, Now! And immediately, 72,000 angels would show up. Twelve legions probably has some sort of symbolic meaning because of the fact that there's twelve of them there, the eleven disciples and Jesus. Therefore, what Jesus is saying here is he doesn't lack any power to make this stop. He's intentionally bearing the pain, even the personal pain of betrayal. He's part of, he knows, he's part of a divinely ordained moment. He is intentionally walking this path. Thus, verse 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, put your sword in its sheath. I could call angels. And the real issue is that the scriptures are being fulfilled in this moment. The NIV gives us a more fluid translation. It says, but then would the scriptures be fulfilled that said it must happen this way. In other words, Jesus knows that all of this, including, friends, his personal betrayal, is all a part of God's plan. 
So this, this personal betrayal is significant. It, it's deep. It hurts. But then Jesus turns his attention to the mob or this crowd. And interestingly enough, he addresses what I would call here their bad process. He says in verse 55, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. He's he's calling them out on the fact that every day he was at the temple and they could have easily come and arrest him there. But he knows that they wouldn't. Why? Because they would cause a riot. That's why. So what he's calling them out on here is their sneaky little plan to come at 3 o'clock in the morning and arrest him so nobody will see. He knows that they are on the way to a kangaroo court and that their process and what they're doing is deceitful and despicable. Jesus knows that they're doing things this way for a particular reason, but verse 56 is the key. He then says this, but all this, notice all this, all this, all this, how you've arrested me, coming in the middle of the night, coming with Judas and the kiss and the arrest, all of it, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. All this. All of it. All of it's part of God's plan. Do you know why that's significant? It's significant because what Jesus says here is that in the midst of even personal betrayal and in the midst of deceitful process, God can still use those for his plans. Oh, I really want to be able to get this into your heart just so that you know that, that when bad things happen, when bad people are involved, and even when bad process happens, and if you live long enough on the planet... If you grow up, I'll guarantee you, you're going to have somebody betray you, and I'll guarantee you, you're going to have something happen to you that you look at and go, this process stinks. How this went down was bad. This was wrong. It wasn't even biblical. Throw everything you want. It wasn't constitutional. It doesn't fit the way you should treat people. Process, process. And at that point, you have one of two choices. Either you can get bitter and resent the people and the process, or you can say, you know what? God knows. I don't know. God knows. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is pointless. Personal injustice that takes place because of a bad person or a bad process doesn't short-circuit God's plan. And the beautiful thing is that God is able to use even personal injustice at this level for our good. No greater example of this in the Old Testament than a man named Joseph. For those of you not familiar with him, let me give you the cliff note version of his life, Genesis 37 to 50, if you want to read up on it. But here's what happens. So Joseph is born into a very dysfunctional family. He's got one dad, and his dad's got two wives. Joseph was born by the right wife, and therefore he was highly favored. The other sons that were born by the other wife, father didn't love. And to show Joseph his love, and probably to just kind of stick it in the eye of his wife he didn't like, he gave Joseph a coat of many colors. So every time he puts on this coat and walks around, it's like a big varsity jacket telling all the JV guys how losers, what losers you are. He's walking around at breakfast and showing off his threads and how he's like all top shelf loved by dad. And, and then Joseph has this dream, two dreams actually, but I'll just tell you one, where he dreams that there's these, these, these gatherings of, of wheat, we'll call them sheaves, and, and his sheaf um, looks like one thing, and then the rest of his brothers are kind of outside of where he is personally. And then, remarkably, in the dream, all of the sheaves representing his brothers bow down to his sheaf. 
So at breakfast, he comes with his coat of many colors, his varsity jacket on, comes to breakfast, and, hey, guys, what's happening? Hey, you know a funny thing last night? Do you guys ever have funny dreams? Yeah, we have funny dreams. Well, I had this funny dream last night. And so check this out. So all of your sheaves, we're out in the field, and your sheaves are out there, and then my sheaves over here. Crazy thing, your sheaves all bow down to mine. Isn't that funny? And they're like, I hate this dude. So one day, his brothers go off on a trip, and Joseph goes out to see them, see how they're doing. And they're like, you know what, this is it. Let's take this, let's take this kid out. We're, we're tired of him. So they, they take his coat, put blood on it, throw him in a pit. They sell him to some traveling traders that are going by. Tell her dad that he was killed by an animal. Joseph sold into slavery to a man named Potiphar, big high-ranking official in Egypt. Problem is, Potiphar has a wife that's a little loose in terms of her morals. Joseph's lean and cut. He's a buff dude, and she sees him, and, and she comes on to him. Joseph runs away, and she cries sexual assault. Well, Joseph, without a trial, anything else, is arrested, put in a prison. And when you think of prison, don't think like Marion County Jail. Think like French Revolution dark prison where they throw the key away and forget about you. And he's down there, falsely accused. His life's over for all intents and purposes. While he's there, he meets two guys, um, a butler and a baker. They have some dreams. He interprets them. One guy gets killed. One goes to the king. Joseph says, don't forget about me. When he got there, guess what he did? Forgot about him. And then Pharaoh one day says, hey, I had these crazy dreams. Is there anybody who can interpret dreams? And all of a sudden, bang, the guy who was within, in jail with Joseph before is like, I, I know a guy who can interpret dreams. Joseph comes to the, the, the Pharaoh's uh, palace and he tells the Pharaoh about this dream that there's going to be seven years of, of good and then fa- seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's so impressed with Joseph's knowledge, he puts him in charge of this entire grain project to save the nation of Israel, stores up grain, saves the people. And then his own brothers come. And kind of a twist of fate, the music goes doo 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 as they come, and there he is in the presence, and they ask for grain, and Joseph sees them and gives them the grain, and eventually they find out that it's him, and then Joseph and the rest of the family move to Goshen, and from there, life turns great until the day that Daddy dies, and when Daddy dies, Daddy Jacob, Joseph's brothers thought, "Uh oh, here it comes." Now that dad's out of the way, now that he's gone, Joseph is going to let the full fury of his rage come out. And so they gather before him, they fall on their face, and they ask for his forgiveness. And here's what Joseph says. I tell you all that story so you can hear Joseph's words. Here's what he says. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That is a huge statement. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Oh, if I could get this in your heart. If I could get this verse in your soul so that when bad people or bad process come into your life, that you don't walk around life surprised. Bad stuff's happening to me. Bad stuff's happening. Wake up. We live in a bad world. Bad stuff and bad people and bad processes are going to happen. The question is, when that stuff happens to you, do you have the orientation of Christ and the orientation of Joseph that says you intended evil, but God intended good? They both, Jesus and Joseph, know something really important, that betrayal and bad process do not trump God's purposes. So is betrayal personal? Oh, you bet it is. Is it painful? Is it outrageous? 
is is sinful process outrageous? Definitely. Absolutely. Don't deny that they're painful. Don't be one of those people who walk around and you have pain that's and you're like, oh no, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's a big deal. It hurts. Acknowledge that it hurts. But don't let it take you off this verse which says they intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Back to Jesus, this personal betrayal, this bad process, guess where this all leads? This leads, friends, to what the Bible calls the good news. You know what the good news is? The good news is this. God's holy, you're not. That's the bad news. The good news is is that God's made a way for you to deal with your sin. The, The conviction that you feel when you do bad stuff, that doesn't come from you. That comes from God in his law written on your heart that says when you do bad things, you're going to feel bad. And that bad feeling is like the dashboard in your car that says, hey, wake up. There's more to life than just you and the stuff that you do. And the beautiful thing is that God has sent Jesus to be the atonement for our sins. Meaning that God took all of your sin and poured it out on Christ so he could forgive you of your sins. That's the good news. And the most glorious message in all the world and the reason why this church exists is to proclaim this message that Jesus died for sinners. And therefore you could receive Christ and be forgiven of your sin. Give your life over to Christ and have the kind of relationship with God that the Bible promises. This is good news. And here's the thing. In the midst of this good news, the path to this good news involved pain, bad people, and bad process. So when personal injustice comes your way, I want you to go back to the cross. I want you to remember that Jesus endured the same thing. I want you to rejoice at the fact that even in the midst of the greatest moment of redemptive history, there was still all this bad stuff going on. So that you can know that while things may be really unfair, they are never useless. Never. Never. Here's the second thing. Formal injustice. So that's move from the personal now to the formal. Because sometimes injustice becomes systemic. It becomes institutionalized. It becomes legal, if you will. And this betrayal, this section, comes not from a friend, but from the entire system. It reflects in this moment the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. We have here trumped up charges, kangaroo courts, political expediency, false accusations, and the wrongful execution of an innocent man. So Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's brought to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 57 tells us that they all gathered at his house. This was the Sanhedrin. Seventy rulers who were in charge of the religious law and the religious environment of the nation of Israel. But the problem was, with the the Roman occupation, they didn't have the authority to execute somebody. Only a Roman government could do that. And so they want Jesus dead. They want to kill him. But they have to do it in such a way so it appears as if they're righteous and just. So they got to do it with a shell game. Their shell game is to concoct a charge against Jesus that will be both treasonous to Israel and seditious to Rome. And that charge is is that Jesus has suggested he would tear the temple down in three days and rebuild it. You see, in Rome, uh, they decided that in their realm of influence that religious pluralism should dominate and therefore nobody was allowed to destroy anyone else's temple. If you did that, it would cause an insurrection and a revolt. And therefore, you're not allowed to touch anybody's temple. So Jesus would suggest that he would tear down the temple was in effect charge of religious and temple terrorism. Notice verse 59. Now the chief priests of the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And at last, two came forward. 
and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remains silent. So in the midst of all of this, we have a number of real big problems with what's happening in terms of how systemic the injustice was. First, this trial should not be happening at Caiaphas's house. It should be happening at the temple. Secondly, the trial should not be happening at night. It should be taking place during the middle of the day. So your first clue that something's going on here is the fact that they're convening court at 2 o'clock in the morning. Usually when people are getting together at 2 o'clock in the morning for judicial decisions, they're not looking for real justice. Third, Jesus was not offered any kind of defense attorney, which the Jewish law required. Fourth, they allowed, even encouraged, false testimony. Fifth, he was charged with blasphemy, even though he never uttered God's name. And sixth, the verdict of his execution was enacted without the required delay of two days in capital cases. So in our modern-day vernacular, you know what this is? This is a lynch mob. The intention of the Sanhedrin is to kill him, and they're using just enough semblance of justice so they can hide behind it. Since Jesus then refuses to answer, the high priest puts him under an oath. Verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Then he asks Jesus directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And then Jesus refuses, rather Jesus, if he refuses to answer, will be breaking a imposed oath that the high priest has just put him under. If he denies that he's the Messiah, then it's game over. So he says, you have said so. Something similar that he had said to Judas back in Matthew 26, 25. That didn't tick them off. What he said next caused a bedlam to happen in Caiaphas's house. Quote, I tell you from now on, this is Jesus, I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. At that moment, everything broke loose. The high priest tore his clothes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And then they spit on his face and struck him and some slapped him. They're going to abuse the prisoner for a while. And they said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And then bang, the text ends. Just like that, bang. Jesus' second statement, what, what, what caused them to just go into this fury? It was that second statement, which was so incredibly loaded. What he did is he quoted Daniel chapter 7, which refers to the Son of Man, which, is a, which was the stellar um, passage on what it meant to be the Messiah. In fact, Daniel 7 sounds like this. Listen to it, verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus quotes this and says that the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, what is he saying? He's telling them that while they are judging him, that this isn't the final quarter. The buzzer of justice may sound, but he'll be back. 
What he's telling them is that from then on, they will not see him as he stands before them now, but they will see him as his in his undisputed capacity as king, messiah, and sovereign judge. What he's saying is this, you may be judging me now, but this isn't over. Can you imagine what these priests thought when they heard from their soldiers a few days later? The tomb's empty. What do you mean it's empty? It's empty. He's gone. Well, they stole him. Well, maybe they stole him. What if he's... Shh, don't you dare say that. Don't you... What if he's raised from the dead? What if he's... Because if he's who he claims to be, yeah, they're in big trouble. They're religious toast is what they are. <laughs> he's telling them something very important beyond even himself. Here's what he's saying, friends. He's saying, listen, legal, formal, and institutional injustice, listen to me, is not ultimate. In other words, there is another day coming in which the court of heaven will convene and this seated judge and king will make the ultimate and final determination of what is just. So the Sanhedrin can charge him with blasphemy. They can accuse him of many things. They can spit on him. They can mock him. They can abuse him. They can even crucify him as a common, common, despicable criminal. But Jesus will have the last word. The system may be corrupt and bigoted and evil, but it is not ultimate. So hear me, the system of your family could have been incredibly dysfunctional. The school that you went to may have been enormously unfair. The little city that you grew up in may have been incredibly bigoted. The business that you work for could be filled with all sorts of politics. And you see all of this system that's just so wrong. And what you need to know is it may be wrong, but it is not ultimate. The government can be messed up, the courts can be perverse, society can be completely messed up, but at the end of the day, it is not the final authority. Jesus will have the final word. And when you are in the middle of a system that is so ripe with injustice, you need to know that this is not the final word. So how do you connect all of this to the cross? How does this, how does this all intersect into what we call the good news? Let me give you a few things. Theologically, here's the first thing. Listen to this. There was never a greater injustice than the cross. So, I'm sure all of us have had some really bad things happen to us in our lives. You may have the most, you may look at your story and you may, you may think this is like the worst thing ever. And it may be the worst thing in your life and it may be really bad, but I can promise you, that what Jesus suffered was a greater injustice than anything you and I will ever suffer. The hope of that is this, that when you feel like you've reached the bottom of the barrel and you feel so alone, like nobody ever hurt like this. No one's ever been so awfully abused. This is the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. When you get to the bottom of the barrel, just know that Jesus goes way, 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 way deeper in that barrel. There was never a greater injustice. Number two, I love this. The devil and sinful men were pawns in the hands of a sovereign God. It's crazy, but it's profoundly important to realize that this moment in redemptive history, this great moment when the good news comes that Christ dies for our sins, it includes the unjust actions of the devil and sinful people. 
So God is using the sinful actions of the devil and the sinful actions of evil people. And he's actually using them to orchestrate his plan. So no matter how bad somebody is, no matter how evil they are, no matter how wicked their schemes are, God isn't looking at your life and going, oh my word, what should we do? He's using them as pawns to accomplish his purposes. In fact, the devil is awful and evil, but he is the lackey of a sovereign God. Third, the beauty of forgiveness is planted or born in the soil, the putrid soil of injustice. Imagine a beautiful plant that springs out of the ground, a plant, we'll call it redemption, this beautiful plant that grows and spreads out its leaves and its arms and it, it spreads to Jews and Gentiles of every tribe, nation, and tongue, this, this beautiful plant that grows full of grace, full of love, full of mercy, and this beautiful plant of, of grace that grows is planted in the putrid soil of injustice. Even though unfairness and injustice were all over this moment, it still produced the best news ever known to men and women on earth. Personally, first, injustice in this lifetime is not comparable to the joy of the next of those who know Jesus. So for those of you who've received Christ as your Savior, you have a personal relationship with Him, I've got great news for you. I've got bad news for those of you who are still unsettled. You think this is bad. You don't, you don't know anything about bad until you know when God says, have it your way, and creates an eternity called hell for you and your sin. That's a real justice event. But for those who know Christ, who've had their sins forgiven, who've received the Lord Jesus as their Savior, the Bible makes this promise. For I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. In other words, is there going to be suffering? Is there going to be hardship? Are there going to be difficulties? Will you have unfair things happen to you? Absolutely. So what's your hope? Is your hope denying that it's unfair? No. Is your hope trying to avoid all the unfairness? No. What is the hope? The hope is in the midst of the unfairness, you know this isn't what I'm living for and the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared of what's going to be revealed to me. The only hope found in Christ is that what is to come far outweighs what we experience now. And then here's the last one, and this is the bullet of the entire sermon. Here it is. You want to boil everything down we talk about? It's this one thing. Unfair doesn't mean useless or ultimate. There it is. Unfair. Is it, is it unfair? Yes, it is. Don't deny that it's unfair. This is unfair, but it doesn't have to be useless or ultimate, meaning that we have to remind ourselves that like Joseph, God has a purpose and a plan. There's no wasted tear, no wasted pain. There's nothing pointless or meaningless or useless. There's always divine ends. You just can't always see how. And even personal betrayal and even stinky process can still be used for God's glory. It's not useless. One of the hopeless statements you will feel inside your soul is this. There's no point to this. That's not true. There's always a point. You just can't see it. It's not useless. It's not ultimate. Meaning, we need to remind ourselves that, as a friend of mine says, the scoreboard's in heaven. So when the entire system seems to be biased, when the entire family unit is bigoted or unfair or your work is unjust or hurtful or the court systems are letting you down, just remember, this is not ultimate. There's another king, there's another judge, there's another government that is to come. And that's what I'm counting on. 
So unfair is not useless or ultimate. There is a point to all of it. They won't get away with it. And the Bible and the cross hold these two truths so boldly. It was Job who suffered so many things who said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. So when injustice happens to you, here's my encouragement. Go back to the cross and remember Jesus. Cling to him. Remember him. Pray to him. Love him. Read about him. Just remember Jesus. I think no other music form better expresses the pain of personal and formal injustice than Negro spirituals. Our African-American brothers and sisters know more about historical injustice than many of us could even barely think about. I think every believer needs to read an outrageous historical account of the 1950s and 60s to really understand what injustice is. That's why I think the song, Give Me Jesus, is so powerful. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. When I am alone, yes, when I am alone, When I am alone, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. And when I come to die, yes, and when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would pour out your heart today to those who walk through great unfairness and injustice and that you would, by your mercy today, pour your love into their hearts. I pray for those who, this very moment, you are showing them the reality of their need to receive you because they have an aching hole in their heart. They don't know what it means to give me Jesus. Lord, I pray that today you draw them marvelously to yourself and for those who just live in this constant reality of grief and pain that today you would just remind them that you have been there done that and you are going to make it right and so let them say when i come to die you can have all this world but just give me jesus before i release you this morning church i just want you to know that afterwards there's some folks up here who would love to give you a hug and just love on you, love to pray with you, love just to counsel you from God's word. They'll be up here and would love to be able to pour out God's grace on your heart. Don't leave today with a burden without someone being able to pray for you. And so College Park Church, hear this benediction from Romans 16 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.